Dan Pena gave the following presentation at the New York Harvard Club on May 6, 1997. The luncheon was sponsored by the Chief Executive Officers Club. Dr. Joe Mancuso, President for the Center of Entrepreneurial Management, is introducing Dan to the group. Dan Pena, I'd like you to though look at some of the very positive press that I've just noticed that he has and see if you can see any resemblance at all between that picture which looks to me like it was touched up. <laughs> and the real thing, which is here to entertain and inform. I will say, a years ago, I guess three or four years ago, Dan and I traveled around the country. Had quite a good time. I remember a dinner in Chicago and a few other. <laughs> and I beat him out of at least 100 bucks. Let me tell you, that is not easy. I think there are two living people that beat him out of 100 bucks. And he made a lot of friends. He made a lot of friends in the CEO club. How many here have been over to his castle? One, two, three. Where's Stan Pickett? You go home? Hey, where's Sam? Yeah, you've been twice, two hands. The Verdeers down in Washington have been there, I think, three. They might have the record. Or they're slow learners. I'm not sure. But uh, he's made a lot of friends. He said something like 20 CEO club members have... Uh, have been there and spent a week with them, and it's a nice story. So, with that introduction, I'll give you Dan Pinion. Good afternoon. The, um, it never ceases to amaze me that Joe can lure reasonably sophisticated people like yourself, especially New York City. New York City is normally a couple of times because you think you're smartest. You think that you. Well, I'm here to tell you that's not true. And you're gonna, what we're going to talk about today is how you make a lot of money without having an Ivy League education. I thought that would be apropos since we're in the CEO, or excuse me, in the Harvard Club. But in November 1993, I made a tour and I went to all the then existing CEO uh, clubs. And, uh, and that's right. Uh, Joe did beat me out of $118, it was, not $100. Uh, but a lot's happened since November 1993. Um, I was hired officially in 1984 uh, when I took a company that I founded uh, with $800 and I took it public and I grew it to a $445 million market cap in eight years from scratch zero. From the time I had the idea to the time I got out, $445 million. That's more or less what I'm famous for, or infamous for. Um, but more importantly, since I was here in November 1993, I have become a business coach. And in Europe, I'm the most successful business coach in all of Europe now. And I'm on the cover of magazines. And I just returned from uh, Menrod University, which is the Harvard of the Benelux countries. And I gave their keynote speech on their 50th anniversary, and this is a university tie. This is what they give you. That's your cheap. This is what they gave you for traveling to Amsterdam. They gave me an $8 tie, and it's not silk at that. Um, but it's interesting. In 50 years since the university was founded, they've only got 7,000 alumni. But virtually all the prime ministers and all the heads of state, the head of the World Dutch Shell, Phillips, Unilever, et cetera, et cetera, went to the school. And uh, in their 50th anniversary year, Bill Gates was the opening speaker, and I was the closing speaker. And um, the recognition that I received over there 
has been quite phenomenal, but it actually started here. It started with Smoking Joe Mancuso, as I like to call it, referring and the tour that I made uh, in that November of 1993, seems like a long time ago, uh, and uh, about 25 CEO club members have gone to Castle Experience, um, some twice, some three times. Stan Pickett went through twice in three weeks, if my memory serves me correctly. Um, and uh, we've had a lot of success. One of the things that I'm very proud to have helped create is since I became I retired a second time and started doing this four years ago. We have created for our students over $100 million of equity to them, uh, which ain't bad considering some of them had little companies doing $50,000 a year and $100,000 a year and $500,000 a year. Uh, I'd like to read something. There's a new book that just came out called The Rose Warrior Strategy for Success. And its author is a guy named Richard Martinko. Um, and he was the head of the counterterrorism field team, the, the, the best field team, the uh, counterterrorist fighting unit that uh, the United States government has. And in his introduction, and this is really, I'm not here to embarrass anybody, I'm not here to hurt anybody's feelings, I'm not here to blaspheme God, I'm not here to do any of those things, but I will do all of them. I will make many of you feel very, very uncomfortable. Uh, but as he said in his introduction, I do not pretend to be politically correct or sensitive to the many special desires of the various segments of our society. I write only what I know, I say only what I know, from experience I gained in unforgiving circumstances. I know what it takes to be at the absolute best, and I know the price that must be paid when I fail to achieve that level of perfection. The ideas that I present worked when nothing else did. They produced results when nothing else did. They are simple but powerful. Sometimes people tell me that things like egotism, complacency, and fear are just human nature. Well, fuck human nature. If you want to succeed and stay successful, you've got to rise above human nature. My experience in life and my experience in business, which has been fairly exceptional, has proven a number of things, one of which sensitivity normally equals poverty. All the high-performance people, and when I talk about high-performance people, I don't talk about the top 2%. There are 5.7 billion people on the planet right now, plus or minus. I'm talking about the top two-tenths of a percent. <clears throat> that means 11 and a half million people. Now, 11 and a half million people sounds like a lot, but not when it's spread across 5.7 billion. And I don't know what that is as a fraction. Uh, maybe Stan Pickett will figure it out for us. Uh, by the way, you're the, still the only person that has been able to say Invictus. These guys are not smart enough to know what I'm talking about, but you know what I'm talking about, Stan. You're still the only one that can even say one line, let alone the whole damn thing, that has ever been through the Capitol experience. Yeah, they, are, they should learn it because there's no, they, they've got bloody heads just as it says about Invictus. I'm talking about the top 11 and a half million people on the planet. I'm talking about not just being the top of your class at Harvard, at whatever you went to school. By the way, how many Harvard men or, and or women do we have in the audience? One. Stan, you're always in the minority. That's good. And one of the things that I will pound to death here 
is that if you want to make the kind of money, and money's not everything. Normally when I finish one of these talks, uh, all Dan talks about is money. Doesn't he know that there's more to life than family, there's God? There's a lot of other things. That's true. And I'm happily married man for 24 years. I have three lovely children. I've been married three times with the same wife. We've redeemed our vows twice. Um, but money's the only thing that people keep count of, keep track of. And what I've learned, and the super wealthy, super successful people that I've had the privilege of being associated with, they all know that mega wealth gives you choices. And that's really what life's all about. If you choose to take that money and do something about the ozone layer, which I never gave a damn about, or choose to do something about the uh, Brazilian rainforest, which I also never gave anything damn about, that's your choice. It's about choices. High-performance people, and what I really talk about is super growth and geometric growth, uh, uh, quantum growth, as opposed to arithmetic growth. You can't tell Bill Gates or any of the people that have founded successful companies like he has uh, that uh, geometric growth is not sustainable. The kind of growth that I talk about is by acquisition. I learned about 20 years ago that I wasn't a good day-to-day manager. Some of you in this audience actually think you're good day-to-day managers. I'm here to tell you wrong. Because if you were a good, a good day-to-day manager, your companies would be growing a lot better, a lot quicker, a lot faster than they are. I'm here to say that most of the main fortunes, if not 99% of all the mega wealth that's been created on this in this world has been created with a few exceptions through acquisition. Buying revenue is a lot easier than creating it. And what we cover at the Castle Experience and the other seminars that go around the world is that. But before we get to that point, we have to understand what makes the Dan Pena, and by the way, there's two ends of the continuum of high performance. There's the Dan Pena, Norman Schwarzkopf end, General Patton end, and there's the Henry Kissinger end. Most high-performance people on the planet are at the Henry Kissinger end of the continuum, not the megalomaniac, psychopath, psycho end that I'm in. Most of them are at the end you're at. And if we took a survey here and we went around and asked you, are you at Colin Powell's in the middle, Pena's at one end, the psycho end, and Henry Kissinger's at the other end, most of you would be from Colin Powell to Henry Kissinger. Those are most of the high-performance people. So don't misconstrue anything that I talk about in this next 30, 40, 50 minutes and, and, and block out because you don't sound like me or your communication skills aren't like mine. But one of the differentiations of the high-performance people that I talk about is they all have extraordinary communication skills. They're all, they're, now, Brock Perot is not a great public speaker, in case you didn't notice, when he was pretending to run for president. Yes. This is GMP. See this chart here? If we remember those televised commercials that he paid a lot of money for. Bill Gates is not a tremendous public speaker. Uh, and neither are most of them. But they do have good communication skills. But the one thing that they have ascertained early in their careers is that we have two bank accounts in life. We have a financial bank account and we have an emotional bank account. As low as some of your financial bank accounts might be, your emotional bank account is lower. The real crux of being a high-performance person is self-esteem. I often ask this question that I did when I was in Europe. I also spoke at the University of Amsterdam. And I've talked at the University of Texas, and I've talked at Stanford, and I've talked to a lot of great schools, and I asked three questions. And 
L.B. Burke, who is in the audience, who is a partner of mine, and I taught a course at Arizona State University uh, Graduate School of Business. We lasted two times, two classes, and they fired us because we hurt the feelings of the students. We were specifically, she was too hard on the new MBA. She asked me three hard questions. One, and these are the questions I always ask, how many classes have you had in leadership? Unless you went to Annapolis, unless you went to one of the military schools, virtually always the answer is zero. There's only one college in America that gives a degree in leadership, let alone a class, and that is Hillsdale College, a little school, liberal arts school in Michigan. It's also the only university in America that will not accept government funding. It's been that way since 1848 when it first got started. The second question we ask, and this is normally a question I like to poke fun at the MBA students, or guys or gals with MBAs, how many classes did you take in selling a business? Normally, not one hand. How many classes did you take in buying a business? Not one hand. Well, you've taken no classes in leadership, you had no buying and no selling classes, now what the hell did you learn about? Crunching numbers, running ratios, that's not running a business. For those of you that have started a business, how many in the room have started a business from scratch? You know that first 50 or $100,000 in revenue, that's geometric growth. You understand that? That next hundred or two or $300,000 in revenue, that's exponential growth. You understand that? Then what happens to you? You all know how to create exponential growth. What happens to you? Conventional wisdom happens to you. Because conventional wisdom says you can't sustain that growth. You can't tell Bill Gates that. I remember at a CEO function, I don't think he's in the room, a guy, one of the speakers, got up and bragged like hell because his company went from 1.8 to 2% profit margin over 35 or 40 years. I almost threw up. First of all, I didn't know what the hell I was why you even had him there. I was embarrassed to be on the diet with this bone. 1.8 to 2% and he's up bragging. Took him 40 years and a merger. 40 years and a merger. You cannot tell Bill Gates and the people that have run high performance companies that you cannot continue to sustain that exponential growth. What happens in conventional wisdom? We sit back on our laurels. We sit back on our assets. We start to covet what we've made, and we start to not running the operation in the same manner as we did in the beginning. We lose that lust for life. Remember that lust you had for that first significant other in your life? You wanted to be with them all the time. You wanted to touch them. You threw it in the bathroom. You threw it in the car. You threw it on the sink. That lust that you had when you first started your business and you worked seven days a week, Umpteen hours didn't make a difference. That's how you maintain that exponential growth. When I call Anaconda Worldwide Headquarters in Phoenix, Arizona, and one of my partners that is reportable to Lucinda Burke answers the phone, Anaconda Worldwide Enterprise, how can I help you at 11.30 at night on a Friday? It's orgasmic for me. It's orgasmic. 
you can maintain that exponential growth back to the two bank accounts if your emotional bank account overdraft facility as they would say in Europe has some staying power what happens is we have no staying power because most of us when we look in the mirror don't like ourselves and we know it there was an interesting article printed last year in the Los Angeles Times about turning 50 it was written by a 25 year old little snot-nosed brat of a girl it talked about all the things that go wrong with your body when you turn 50. I never really focused, and I just turned 50, by the way, when I read this article, but I never really focused on it, but virtually everything falls to shit. I mean, there's nothing good with you. And they said at 60 and 70, it's even worse. I said, I wanted, I, I wanted to rip the tongue out of this little girl that wrote this article. And, um, but then, more importantly, the, the pictures, the schematics that they had of a man 50 and a woman 50. If that's the way we think of ourselves when we look in the mirror, no wonder. No wonder we're not more successful. These are two pathetic sites. I mean, a celluloid ridden lady with saddlebags, and that's when you're fat in here on the Barricose bang guy, no hair on his goddamn head, drawn face. I mean, two pathetic human beings. I was, I, I'm not even sure they were homo sapiens. I really wasn't. But if, if that's how we think of ourselves at age 50, then how do we call on those financial institutions? How do we do the things that are necessary to grow our business? It's that emotional bank account. I've never seen a part-time high-performance person. When I see these infomercials, and I hear some of you talk about starting a business, another business, to supplement your business. First of all, high-performance people focus on the few, not the many. The few. Most of you that are in more than one business shouldn't be. And you wonder why you've got a bunch of businesses that are doing one million, a half a million, 15, 20 million. They focus on the few, not the many. I see that virtually all high-performance people are super enthusiastic. From Ross Perot in his own way to Dell, to Trump, they all have huge egos. Let's talk about Don Trump for a second. I happen to know. Some people say he's a megalomaniac. Probably so. Do any of the high-performance people you know not have big egos? Do any of the high-performance people you know do they act in an unenthusiastic manner? Some of my partners and, and I met with a venture capitalist this morning on a transaction. Uh, that there, we're talking to them about putting between 10 and 50 million dollars in on a platform basis, meaning they're going to get in at the beginning of the company, and then we will promote other people going forward. They listen to hundreds of business proposals a year, and they make two or three investments a year. Hundreds. You wonder why your transactions don't get financed more readily? The numbers don't stack up. I almost get, not on the first tranche, the first time, I don't bring, and high-performance people don't bring shit numbers to banks, insurance companies. They know better. We're not growing faster. We're not in a business that is growing exponentially. One, because we stopped that rust that we had for our business. But on top of it, then we bring them crappy numbers. <laughs> 
Why do you think none of you want to sign or guarantee your loans? Because you know that there's a good chance that the thing's going to go in the toilet. Well, if you think it's going to go in the toilet and you won't sign your name, then why in God's name would any venture capitalist that's got a half a brain or any banker that's got a half a brain, which not many bankers have a half a brain, I mean, I'm not going to answer to any bankers in the audience now after I said that. Remember that, that time I pounded the uh, chairman of chemical banks? One of my great speeches is called The Harvard Take, one of the best times I ever had. Why, why is it then that you expect, you, you lament about not growing, not being more successful? It's become very, very close. Since I've become a professional business coach, May from 1993 till today, I'm currently chairman of 35 companies in the United States and Europe. I'm a non-executive chairman in 35 companies and I own between 35 and 85% of these 35 companies. But the one thing that has really come home to me from starting with the CEO club circuit back in 1993 and more recently at uh, Nineroz University in Amsterdam, uh, which I just returned from, is that the high performance people that I keep talking about all had a mentor. And it's one of the things that I talk about. I had the privilege of having a mentor in Constantine Grasso, the CEO of Anastas Shipping Lines, a 65-year friend of Aristotle Onassis. They grew up together. When Mr. Onassis passed away, he took over as the head of the Christine Onassis Trust. And he took me under my, his wing when I was about 30 years old. Um, I've also had the privilege of knowing men like Harold Janine or Henry Singleton. Um, they all had a mentor. You know who Bill Gates' mentor is? Warren Buffett. You know who Ross Perot's mentor is, wasn't it? Joe Batten. Now you've heard of Warren Buffett. Joe Batten was Ross Perot's mentor. He wrote, wrote two great books which I recommend highly. One was Tough-Minded Management by Joe Batten, and the current one is Tough-Minded Leadership by Joe Batten, with an introduction by Ross Perot. We have, we have coaches and we have guides for every aspect of our life, from playing tennis, We've got personal coaches that get us up in the morning to do push-ups and sit-ups and lift weights, etc. We want to get to be a better tennis player, what do we do? We go get a tennis coach, right? We want to get to be a better anything, what do we do? We go get a coach. How many of you have business coaches? How many of you have practiced being successful? For every hour that I'm, and I'm a consummate public speaker, if you haven't figured this out already, I'm a world-class public speaker. I practice at least one hour for every hour that I'm on the diet. And I can give this speech in my sleep. When was the last time you practiced being a high-performance person? It's vogue now to go to personal development talks. It's vogue now to read books, read tapes, etc., or listen to tapes. And as the author of this article pointed out, she said, Tony Robbins, read 700 books and assimilated the knowledge of 700 different people to face or formulate his methodology. Mr. Pena's done 700 transactions. And there's a whole hell of a lot of difference between reading 700 books and doing 700 deals. I've made 65,000 business decisions in my 26 years in business. 65,000. I've been wrong about 28,000 times. 
I've traveled millions of miles on planes. I was one of the first million mile members of American Airlines in the early 80s. I've had thousands of nights in hotels searching for money. I've had over 250,000 business conversations on telephone. I've been gone from my family more than I like to admit. My wife can give you down to the micro minute. I live in a castle on a big estate and I have my own 18 home golf course. For some of you, that's not important. But there's a price to pay and another characteristic of these high performance people that have made a lot of money without an Ivy League education is they understand that key price to action. They understand you've got to give something up to get. How many this is a real question. How many of you are willing to change your lifestyle to get to be closer to the end of the higher high performance end of the continuum? Some of you aren't willing to do anything. I remember giving this group a special deal to come to the Castle Seminar. Now get this, listen to this. Six thousand dollars for two. It is now $18,000 a head per person. And the cheap screws, I don't think anybody from New York came, because you were all too slick. You were all too smart. What have you done in the last three and a half years? George and Deanne Verdier, who's been there three times, two or three times, Stan Pickett, who's been there twice. You're tomorrow night in Potomac, the CEO of uh, Baltimore, Washington, D.C. are having a joint. Everybody. They're all invited, a joint here, which I'm going to uh, talk at, I believe. And their new mansion, stone mansion in Potomac, with stables, etc., etc., and for years in our apartment. They've made quite a bit of money uh, in the last three and a half years. The most successful person that's come to the seminar in the last three and a half years has only made about $35 million. It's a woman named Burl the Thumper Crump, a nurse. Some of you should go home and turn the key on your business. Now, I've said this before at other CEO club events, and this has gone over like a turd in a punch bowl. You know why you should turn the key on your business? Because you don't like what you're doing. They take holidays in Europe between four and eight weeks. God knows how many in Italy. I never asked anybody down there. But between four and eight weeks. Most people spend more time planning their vacation than their business. You know why? Because it's easier to escape than to measure up to the reality of where you are. Most of you, and I say this generically, not just because I'm in New York City, don't like what the hell you're doing. Because if you did, you could work for the 18, 20-hour days like I do. Michael Milken, before he got in trouble, Michael and I are contemporaries, he's a year younger than I am, um, was asked, I don't know, maybe seven, eight years ago, Mr. Milken, how, the year he made $550 million, whatever that year was, and he was underpaid, according to him, uh, how is it that you can be so successful and be that much smarter than anybody else? Probably not. And then he went through this regimen, which is true. I only sleep two hours a day. I work 20 hours a day. I work 364 days a year. Whatever the higher holy Jewish holiday is, Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, whatever one is the highest holy, I take that one off. 
And if you go through 20 hours a day times seven days a week, that's 140 hours a week. That's 100 more than most people work, right? And if you went through all the mathematics, he had like 96 years experience, even though he was only 43 or 44. All the high-performance people, I know Warren Buffett reads about investing in companies day in and day out. I mean, he loves it. He eats it. He breathes it. High-performance people are doing something they enjoy. Bill Gates loves what he does and has since he was a teenager when he came up with the idea of putting a computer, in call it PC in those days, putting a computer in every home in America. Another thing that differentiates the high-performance individual from everybody else is we set goals that transcend our lifetime. You've been taught to set goals with time limits, right? And you've been set, taught to set goals that are not unrealistic, so then when you fail, you don't feel so bad. High-performance people do just the opposite. We set goals that transcend our lifetime. Malcolm South, Ted Turner, set a goal when his dad committed suicide 30-plus years ago. His dad left him two things. He left him a $2 million billboard company, and he left him the idea, Teddy, set goals that transcend your lifetime. When his father passed away, Ted set a goal that he wanted to be the major player in the media business, the major player. That was 30-plus years ago. When he merged with Time Warner a year or whenever it was ago and became the largest shareholder of Time Warner, he had to step down and become vice chairman. He made a joke. I'm used to being second, uh, playing second fiddle. I've been married to Jane Fonda. But he, in effect, became the largest player in the media business. He's the largest shareholder of the largest media Rick Scott. That's one. Rick Scott is the CEO of Columbia Healthcare. How many know Columbia Healthcare company? Rick Scott has 188,000 employees. Rick Scott controls close to 400 hospitals. He's the major, thank you, he's the major player in healthcare industry. Well, listen to this. He was my lawyer. And we're sitting at the Park Lane Hotel eight and a half years ago, and I just put 60 million bucks in my pocket on a transaction, getting beat up by some tough New Yorkers like you guys. And we were laughing, all of us, how easy it was, and he said, Dan, i got to make the kind of money you make. How do I do this? And I said, Rick, you can't be my lawyer anymore. you got to go out in the real world. And he said, where would you go? By the way, same advice I get today. Where would you go? I go, healthcare telecommunications. And one of the partners, relatively became my partner, the partner of Cooper's and said, I learned healthcare. It's easy. Rick said, it's healthcare then. That's, That's all the goddamn due diligence he did. See, because a high-performance person makes decisions quickly and changes his mind slowly over time. Because he believes in his own instincts. You take forever to make a decision, and the first time some prick walks in the door and questions you, oh, you change your mind. We do just the opposite. See, we understand our primal instincts. See, when we were cavemen, we ran around in caves and jumped from tree to tree. It kept us alive, our instincts. Fight or flight, our adrenaline got pumped up and we knew what to do. But over centuries of bad conditioning, your parents, your grandparents, my parents, my grandparents, etc., etc., we have shoved that final instinct down. We don't judge, we don't trust our final instincts anymore. Our intuition, Bill Gates himself has said, oftentimes I just have to rely on my gut instinct, what to do, which way to go, whether to do this against Netscape or whatever. 
I personally think in Peter Drucker, and it's just agreed with me, not because I said it, maybe he's because he's getting old, he's 87 now, that two things, or one thing, he thinks, like I do, that the, first, the PC, the computer, has been the worst thing to the small, medium-sized businessman that ever happened. I've been saying this for years. The reason why is, years ago, it took you weeks to do financial crunching, numbers, ratios. Now you can do that same analysis in minutes. But it still takes you weeks to make a decision. Why? Because you've got no grit. You don't have the nuts to believe in the numbers. As far as I know, and I'm not computer literate and I'm proud of it, as far as I know, garbage in, garbage out. As long as you plug the same numbers in over and over again, you're going to get the same answer, right? Well, then why do you run these programs 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 damn times with the same data? Because you're afraid to make the decision. You're afraid to make the decision. The high-performance people that I continue to talk about, not only three and a half years ago, and the ones that listened to me three and a half years ago, so a man and a woman are all better off. They didn't come all the way to my end because I'm at the, maybe the sociopath end of the continuum. But you don't have to come to my end. All you've got to do is be 5% as good as I am and you'll make more money than you. You won't have to count it. You'll have to goddamn weigh it. You have to admit to yourself that you probably don't like the business you're in now, some of your challenges would be, by the way, there are no challenges. Tony Robbins calls them challenges. There's problems. There were problems 50 years ago, there's problems today. But I'm going to tell you the difference between a challenge and a problem. As it was told to me by a castle, a, a female castle attendee. You know, Dan, we have a private time at the castle. We get to pick my brain, spend time in cognac in the snooker room or play chess or whatever. And she says, you know, the difference between a problem and a challenge is as follows. A challenge is the difference between your fifth and sixth orgasm. A problem is not having any. I can tell you, you know, normally I use sexual metaphors and athletic metaphors because I use sexual metaphors because I give you the benefit of the doubt that everybody in the room knows how to get laid. But from looking from the faces out there, I'm not so sure. <laughs> I'm not so sure anybody got fucked recently. <laughs> This is New York, isn't it? Isn't this the den of inequity? Is this the Sin City? High-performance people hang around high-performance people, and this is another big difference. I love these keynote speeches. I love teaching at schools, even though we get fired from that time to time because universities don't like to hear what we say. I like the seminars because it gives me an opportunity to stay sharp and be around normally fairly sharp people, because I surround myself with high-performance individuals. Machiavelli said it best a long time ago, a ruler is judged by who he surrounds himself by. Now, just, I used to do an exercise. I don't do it anymore because I used to make, make men and women cry. Go around, we let every single person, everybody in the room has talked to in the last seven days, seen in the last seven days, been exposed to in the last seven days, every single person. On another sheet of paper, we let all the individuals that, or excuse me, all the goals we have, personal, financial, whatever. Then we go down, okay, your mother, which one of these goals does she help you with? Your brother-in-law, your sister who's in, 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 a, in a drug rehabilitation place. 
this bank or that bank or we go down. As a percentage, how many people do you think that you talk to in a week that have anything to do with the betterment of your life vis-a-vis -vis success and or your business? Less than 2%. Now we've run these numbers for thousands now. Then how serious are you about success? Come here every six weeks, every five weeks, every eight weeks, whatever. Joe's seen them all. He's seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. Joe's a gentleman. I'm not. He won't tell you if you should close your business down. He won't tell you that the chances you have are slim and none in slim left town. I could pay $3,000 an hour to tell you. I don't give you a 300-page report like Anderson Consulting. I don't do any of those things. I just come in and call a spade a shovel. I can smell death when I walk into a business. I hate when I hear, oh, our business is running smoothly. I just want to puke because I know that you're dying. Rick Smith, who's a member of the Washington, D.C. CEO Club, or Baltimore, one of those, right? I walked into his business. Whenever somebody wants to, Rick wants to pick up at the airport, it's because he wants some free advice. I made the mistake of actually staying in that dumpy called the home he used to live in. He's the cheapest white man I ever knew. This guy takes tea bags and he hangs them up with a pin after he uses them. And he uses them to until they're not, they're white. They're no longer brown. This guy's so goddamn cheap. He finally came to the Castle Seminar and at that time it was twelve or $14,000. He sent me a form from 1993, where it was two for 6000 and tried to flip it through. <laughs> so I walked into his business, and I was there maybe 20 or 30 minutes. I told him what was wrong. Now, he's on the front page of the Washington Post. He, he talked about which the most, one of the most eligible bachelors in that part of the world, which is a yacht, for those of you that are women and you ever saw him. He's got his bar mitzvah picture when he had hair on his head on the, in the Washington Post on the, the Shakers and Movers column. He's made a ton of money. And he said, I only wish that I'd come to 93 instead of 96. Yeah, but he would have saved $8,000 for one. But I mean, these would be where he's been with his life. High performance people trust their instincts. Well, I figured this out back in 1976. And I figured out that the big money is made in the macro sense. See, you're running your business on a micro basis and expecting macro results. That's an oxymoron. That doesn't happen. When I figured this out in 1976, it's when I've made all my money and have founded all these companies. I took an option. I was the first person to take an option public in the UK. I turned $60,000 into 50 million pounds in three and a half months. 200 Mostly Americans followed me until they changed the law, and I was depending on law. You can't take an option public. I did the same thing in Amsterdam. From startup to public offering, from scratch, no money to public offering, the quickest I've ever done it in 25 months. The slowest 13 years. Because at that stage in my career, I thought that I could guess which way the market was going. I now know better. Most of you should have been out, or those of you that are over 40, if you're in an upcycle in your business, sell and get out. You're not going to be smart enough to 
recognize when the end of the up cycle is, or even anywhere near close to the end of the up cycle, and do something else. I had world companies made this $35 million, was running a small construction company that she developed from the real estate sales just so she could have her husband have a job. When she figured this out, she went home, closed the construction company down, closed the real estate company down, told her husband that they were going to split up the assets and get a divorce, and went into health care. And now crosses swords with Rick Scott of this world in the health care business because she always wanted health care because she was a nurse, trained as a nurse. She also lost 118 pounds. She thinks my deal is better for losing weight than making money. I'm not selling it for losing weight, but... It's the type of performance people are doing what they want to do. Most of us don't do what we want to do. I can honestly say, with my hand on my heart, as they say in Great Britain, that I love what I do. If it doesn't come through when I talk, then something's wrong with me. I love to death what I do. I love bringing people that wouldn't normally get across the goal line. Grab them, sit on, kick them. I don't care. See, because I don't care if they're white. That's not my need. My need, my hunger, my passion is for victories for you. To bring the poor bastards across the goal line. That might never have gotten there on their own. And there's a lot of high-performance people in this room. It's to get you across that goal line. See, the one key factor about me is I don't need your goddamn money. So I can tell you whatever I want. Because nobody in this room is going to take my lifestyle. I ask you to ask yourself, next time you're going to go to a seminar, read a book, or buy a tape. One, is this person... He, she, or it, because you've got to cover all the bases now in the 90s. Is this he, she, or it? Is, are they where I want to be in life? Hopefully, you'll have high expectations, but you probably won't, and you'll say yes. So then ask yourself the second question. Did this he, she, or it, did they make their money in a trench warfare, sucking up mustard gas and nerve gas that's dropped on us every single day, make their money in the same way that I'm trying to make mine, or did they make their money putting asses on seminar seats, selling books and tapes? And 99.99% of all the people that you go listen made their money that way. There's only five or six or seven people that have made big money that are in the business coaching business. It's like Tom Peters is a very nice man, very bright guy, PhD, former naval officer in the Vietnam War, a couple, three years older than I am. His goal a few years ago was to, to have his business be built up to a $10 million business. He advises IBM. I don't understand that. I just don't. Uh, uh, there's something there. Maybe it's because I don't have an MBA and I didn't go to one of those schools. You went to Stanford, so that's not a, maybe that's because maybe Stanford, it's a Stanford deal. I'm not sure. My lawyers, for example, my lawyer, Steve Sussman of Sussman Godfrey, was just voted in uh, commercial litigation as, for the second year in a row as the most uh, successful uh, litigator uh, uh, on the planet. Steve Sussman makes 20, 40, 50, 80 million dollars a year. Uh, that's the kind of guy I want advising me. I mean, the average accountant in the United States makes $38,000 a year. The average lawyer makes 58. Why in God's name would anybody ask anybody to make $38,000 a year or anything is beyond my comprehension. 
Jesus, 38,000, big deal. Give me a break. That's, 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 and, 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 and some of you I've heard at the other CEO clubs, and this is probably no different, you bitch about your lawyers, how much you pay them, nah, 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 nah. Another characteristic of a high-performance person is litigation is a business tool. L.B. Burke and I just were in federal court in Florida to make a scumbag fulfill a contract to sell us a $10 million business. So he decided, he got, this is like, a, this is a Joe Mancuso deal. He, 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 somebody offered him another $1,600,000, a million dollars, and he thought he could chicken out of the deal. He didn't think we'd go to court. Well, I've been in court 228 times, litigation, on 228 no. I've never lost. And it's more than a flip of a coin on 50-50. You, you fight with me in court, you're a psychopath. We went to federal court. How long did it take him to capitulate, Elvie? 24 hours. 24 hours. He dropped this guy with a lot of dough. Probably more dough than most in this room. Maybe all of them. He dropped to his knees and begged for mercy. And then we squeezed him some more. Litigation is a business tool. Most of you are afraid of litigation. Because it costs money. So it costs us an extra $30,000 to complete a transaction. One of the things that we, the high performance people understand is that you can get your accountants and your lawyers to go on what's called success-oriented basis, meaning you pay them when you do transactions. This is the end of side A. To continue, turn to side B.